The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Yeah, I thought it would be good early in the year to take a few weeks, maybe three weeks or so, and as a topic for our Sunday morning group to reflect on what the Buddha meant by Nibbana and what is the actual experience of freedom that's available for us in our lives. So that it isn't just something theoretical or something that we believe in, which, you know, has limited value, but something that we're learning to intuit. Because that sense of goal or aspiration or the possibility of freedom is really meant to be a, a thread that guides us all through our life, not just in our meditation practice. As a lot of you have heard, you know, when the Buddha was talking about what his teaching was all about, he would say something like suffering and the end of suffering. And that's it. That's what I care about. That's why I travel the roads of northern India for 45 years or so, because I really care about suffering and the end of suffering. Not theoretically, not as some absolute truth, but experientially for each person, himself and everyone else. And this is really the essentially, you know, the essential relevant fact of our lives. There is suffering and there are moments of release and relief from that suffering. And so the heart naturally cares about this truth of suffering and the end of suffering. Nobody has to try to be interested in suffering and the end of suffering. Although we tend, because of habit, to be on the surface and because of, you know, feeling like a failure or feeling like we're helpless, we do tend to want to give up on it and take the path of distraction, thinking that somehow keeping myself distracted is really the way to deal with suffering in life, with tension, with fear, with anxiety, with brokenheartedness, the pain of loss, you know, all the ways that our heart experiences being burdened, being heavy with burden, being contracted, being feeling oppressed, ignored, alone. You know, there's so many subtle and not so subtle ways that we experience suffering, stress, including the most subtle, which is that nothing ever seems to satisfy the heart in a lasting way. So even if we're fortunate and we have really supportive conditions, good friends, good health, not being taken advantage of, feeling like we belong, feeling like we have ways to contribute to our own and others' well-being, you know, all the, what we might describe as a a good life. Even when we have those favorable conditions, if we're reflective, if we're curious, and we really look, 
there is that truth of comfort and the truth of belonging. Those are real experiences, pleasant, wholesome experiences, and they don't take away from the underlying uneasiness because those good conditions that we hopefully everybody runs into at least in moments in their lives they don't last they're not dependable nobody's in control of them lasting coming and going right so it really begs the question how do we how do we honor this essential defining in a way characteristic or aspect of our lives which is there is suffering stress anxiety uneasiness and there are movements toward the letting go or the releasing or going beyond that stress right and as a practitioner of the buddhist teachings you know a dharma student we say dharma just means you know the way it is and especially in a more subtle universal sense you know we're students of dharma the way it is so they're really in a more strict sense there isn't buddhism the buddha didn't teach buddhism the buddha was interested in the way it is and when we say that we're not talking about it objectively we're really talking about our subjective experience as a human being so it's a very in a in a way it's a very personal practice but we share this personal practice so it's it can sound a little paradoxical right we all have this issue of our subjective experience of suffering and release anybody exempt from that so we share this but it is a personal experience of suffering and release that's why we can be with our best friend and they could be experiencing tremendous suffering and we could even while not being insensitive to their suffering really understanding that they're suffering really caring and responding but not burdened in the way that they're currently burdened so their subjective experience of suffering is in a way each of our subjective experience of suffering is unique in a moment in our heart and doesn't define how it is for those around us it might like i might react to my friend's suffering by um finding ways for my heart to be bound up and tight and angry or whatever so but that's my that's my subjective experience and part of understanding like getting close to suffering is this understanding that there's a i guess we could call it a spiritual responsibility like to take responsibility for the experience of suffering and i really see this as a pragmatic choice thinking that my suffering there's nothing i can do about it it's just pragmatically not a skillful way to relate to suffering being open and curious about what i can do about the subjective experience of suffering is really a skillful way to be relating to our subjective actual experiences of suffering because it keeps us 
as a participant, we're not giving up. We're not taking the road of helplessness or all I can do to deal with my underlying suffering is just line up enough useful distractions, you know, to set, to stay disconnected from it. Well, that itself is just another way of suffering. To need to stay disconnected from my life because my heart's heavy, that's its own kind of suffering. We see that, you know, people who seem to have, you know, all these different passions, whether it's knitting or watching movies or being an Olympic athlete or whatever people might just like really get into. And, uh, but sometimes those passions are just a way of a person not wanting to feel what they're feeling. So they get really into, you know, it's like even these silly things, you know, the person with the biggest ball of twine. I think it was uh, some town in the Midwest, I forget exactly where somebody had in their barn the biggest ball of twine. I mean, it was like taller than six feet height or any of these other things that we do. And, you know, some of them could be maybe even toxic, like being addicted to things that are not helping anybody. Others are more neutral. But if the point of these passions is to run away from our suffering, from the very human subjective experience of loneliness or alienation or not feeling comfortable in our body or not feeling safe in our world, then one, we're not learning anything about how to go beyond the suffering, how to let go of the suffering, how to be at ease and free with this. We're not doing that work of learning or insight and avoidance itself is stressful whether we consciously recognize that or not, it is. Not need, not able, not wanting to be present, rejecting the present moment is an act of tension. Opening to the present moment is an act of release. We can sense this at the beginning of every sit, like one of the particular flavors of beginning a sit, you know, once you've settled into your space, and start to open is just to realize of how much tension was involved in not being present. We think it looks like it takes effort. It does, in a sense, take effort to be present, to sustain present moment awareness. But the effort is only as a counterweight to the habits of distractedness. And those habits are stressful. Even though those habits might dominate our mind, like, it's really easy to be distracted for us. That doesn't mean they're not stressful. You know, like I see my mind, you know, craving, like craving distraction, craving entertainment. I see that craving. It's pretty easy for me to flit about the Internet looking for something interesting to read, right? Something provocative, something juicy, it's very easy, but that doesn't mean it isn't stressful, right? Because the momentum of habit, the momentum of unskillful habits, they just carry the mind along. But that there can be a lot of stress in that. So being interested in freedom, and a lot of times, you know, people go right to the 
you know, deeper teachings and just say, well, freedom is here and now, I don't really need to do anything. And in a way, there's some truth to that. But when we are honest about our habits of mind, we realize because of these habits, to be greedy, to be stingy, to be aversive, to be fearful, to be hateful, to be disconnected, we have to train the mind. The mind may in fact have this potential to just allow things to be. There may be this potential for happiness and ease and freedom to be the most natural thing, but that that kind of natural freedom depends on not having the habits that this heart has. <laughs> so when my mind or your mind or anybody's mind is dominated by habits of greediness and habits of fearfulness and anger and hatefulness, habits of distractedness and denial, then we have to train that mind. We have to sort of, in a more active, personal way, we're going to explore other habits as counterweights to the habits that we're finding already established in the mind. So initially, you know, most of us approach practice from this self-centered point of view. I'm a person who's beginning to sense all these habits that when I pay attention to them, I see they're definitely associated with getting tight. So I want to abandon this habit and I want to abandon that habit because in my own awareness, I see when the mind is relating in this way, in a stingy way, in a greedy way, in a hateful way, in a distracted, superficial way, I notice how entangled and heavy my body, heart, and mind become. So I'm going to train my mind. And, you know, we learn, especially those of you with young kids, the way we train our mind isn't just by saying, no, stop it. <laughs> that has a very limited effectiveness to be sort of wagging the parental finger at our mind. What helps is to redirect the mind, give the mind something to do that doesn't cause stress. So then we begin to understand so many of the techniques and strategies we have in the Buddhist tradition, this, these practices of awareness of being intimate with Dharma, Dhamma, the way it is, right? Like opening, like connecting and sustaining with ordinary experience. You know, the sort of, it sounds sort of new agey, like when you're washing the dishes, just wash the dishes. You know, when you're walking, just walk. When you're seeing, when you're opening to the visual experience, just let seeing be seen. Just let hearing be hearing, touching be touching. And the, the thing we have to understand, the mind isn't used to being so simple and so empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's a real training. We have to actually cultivate a taste for the simplicity and a taste for the freedom of non-craving, non-clinging, non-grasping. And the only place we learn this freedom, this release of non-grasping is in the present moment, in reality. 
in our subjective reality. It's the only place. It isn't enough to get it intellectually, like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Non-attachment, non-grasping. I am a true believer in non-grasping and non-attachment and just letting things be. And, you know, we can do that at the same time obsessively eating Doritos, which, you know, or chips, your favorite, you know, salty chip, whatever that might be, and kind of miss, you know, or sort of unconsciously uh, restless in our bodies, trying to look for the comfortable way to sit. So we have these ideas, we think, oh yeah, non-grasping is the way, but we're totally non-observing all the ways the mind is justifying grasping and struggling and reacting and trying to get someplace where then I'll be relaxed, then I'll be released, then I'll be at ease, as opposed to reflecting here and now. Oh, okay, so non-grasping is the way. Well, what does non-grasping look like now? What does letting go or letting things be, allowing, look and feel like now? So, you know, we got our world. Each of us, we have our relationships, as imperfect as they are, with our friends, with our partner, with our families. We have our relationship with our jobs, the way we put food on the table. We have our way of relating to our body, our bodies, our moods, our psychological conditioning, our cultural conditioning. We have all these ways of relating and probably reacting. So this is our the ground of our practice. Well, what does freedom look like? What does non-attachment look like? What does letting things be or letting go of look like when it's like this? The non-attachment, that unshakable, uncontrived release of the heart. What does that look like when circumstances are like this? And then we explore. And in a way, it's about getting suspicious of suffering. Because the, the deep habit I have, I'm assuming all of us have, is suffering is bad. Suffering is a problem for me. And we, in doing that, we externalize like, oh, here's it. This is the insult, and this is the cause for my suffering. And we need to replace that kind of arrogant certainty, any arrogant certainty we have around suffering, with a kind of openness and curiosity and humility. Oh, the heart's really hurting. The heart feels really burdened. The heart body feels really tight. Well, this is interesting. Because I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know with certainty, but I'm pretty sure that how the mind is relating or how the mind is understanding is part, is, is somehow one of the causes for the suffering that I'm experiencing right now. Because it's really useful for us to presume that the mind is involved in our experience of suffering. And it 
it sort of ends the conversation when we just arrogantly presume that the cause for my suffering is all about this other person or all about this thing that is outside of me and coming in and causing my suffering and I'm just totally helpless. There's no way for me to be relating to this that's either more helpful or less helpful, more skillful or less skillful. And the thing is, that's the dynamic that makes a difference. It doesn't mean that that person shouldn't be treating us differently. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't say something to that person, or it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to uproot the systemic causes for injustice in our world. It just means that the suffering that I'm personally, subjectively experiencing right now, there's a way for me to show up to that, with that, that is more or less helpful. And I have every incentive to get better at relating to my personal, subjective experience of suffering. How to relate to this suffering? I mean, that question alone takes us a long way. That basic movement of wisdom that goes, oh, I'm hurting. <laughs> my heart's heavy. My heart feels burdened. The heart's afraid. The heart's tight. Something like that. So first, we just acknowledge the suffering and we normalize it. Oh yeah, this is how it is sometimes. We human beings, it's not easy having a sensitive heart that is exposed to suffering. And I care about it. I care enough to be interested in this subjective, actual, personal experience that I call suffering or stress or being burdened or being tight. The squeeze, one of the um, elders in the Thai forest tradition calls it the squeeze of the heart. Right? I mean, it has an energetic quality when we're suffering. And the key is we is to be interested in it. Because when we're tracking it with mindful awareness, that open present moment awareness, we'll see what feeds, what supports the squeeze in the heart and what allows the releasing, the opening up, the letting go of the squeeze. It's only when we're interested but when we think, I'm suffering because you're mistreating me, we don't look at what we can do to take care of our own suffering. And of course, having taken care of our own suffering to some degree, we're much more capable of dealing what needs doing what needs to be done in our wider world, saying what needs to be said, standing up, speaking up, getting involved, because we're managing better our own suffering. We're learning how to be immune to the insults that inevitably come our way. Because even if we become the most competent activist in our immediate families, in terms of the healing in our immediate families, and the most competent activists in our communities, probably, who knows, but probably the insults, the difficulties will keep coming because there's still birth, aging, and death. There's still a bunch of beasts trying to survive. There's still these issues of power that are just 
to me at least seem endemic in all of us beasts on the planet getting by, right? So even when we're um, skillful and um, doing our best to create societies and communities that are healthy, it won't ever be perfect. There will be insults to being a human being, difficulties, right? So the simile that's used in the early Buddhist tradition is having to walk around on the planet and there are sharp stones and thorns and sticks that poke our skin. And so the person has a person has a brilliant idea. Well, let's cover the entire earth with a really nice shag carpeting, you know, and then we'll be able to walk around barefoot and it won't be any problem. And it's actually, you know, it could work if there were a way to cover the world in a nice soft carpet. And another person says, well, that's a good idea. But here, this may be a little bit more practical. Instead of trying to fix the world by carpeting it, let's just make a really good pair of shoes. And then maybe all the sharp stuff won't be so problematic. And this is like doing our Dharma practice it actually allows us to be in the world because we're learning this immunity to the joys and sorrows of the world. We're not thrown off balance by the joys, the good fortune, and we're not sh thrown off balance by the difficulties that come our way. Here's a story from uh, the early tradition regarding Maha Pajapati. Those of you who've been in our meditation hall here in Minneapolis know that on our altar in the meditation hall we have a statue of the Buddha. And then standing next to the seated Buddha is um, Maja Pajapati. And she was the Buddha's aunt who raised the Buddha because the Buddha's mother evidently died at childbirth. And then... Um, uh, so the Buddha's aunt raised him. And then she was um, the first woman to be ordained as a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained Buddhist nun, and uh, became one of the awakened ones at the time of the Buddha. And so while she was still practicing on her way to being fully awake and free, Maha Pajapati Gotami went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, stood to one side. As she was standing there, she said to him, It would be good, sir, if you would teach me the Dharma in brief, such that, having heard these teachings from you, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. Go to me. So that's the family name. Go to me. The qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion. Now, passion's an interesting word because these days we often think of passion as a good thing, but, you know, the root meaning of passion is suffering, just straightforward suffering. And dispassion is the heart softening its grip around what causes suffering. So the Buddha says to go to me, these qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, 
to accumulating, not to shedding, to self-aggrandizement, not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to disentanglement, to laziness, not to aroused persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome, then you may categorically hold this is not the way, this is not the training, this is not the teacher's instruction. I like that. And then he goes, he does the opposite. For those qualities that lead to dispassion, not to passion, that lead to being unfettered, not to being fettered, that lead to shedding, letting go, not to accumulating, that lead to modesty, or you could say maybe modesty is another one of these words that we tend to see as as a kind of unskillful thing. But really here, modesty means like uh, the absence of conceit um, that lead to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontentment, to, uh, to disentanglement, not to entanglement, to persistence, not to complacency or laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome, you may categorically hold, this is the way, this is the training, these are the teacher's instructions. And it ends by saying, Mahapajapati was delighted in the Buddha's words and soon became awakened, one of the awakened ones. So it isn't that um, it's it's so empowering for us to realize that it's just this simple discernment that is available to all of us. What is it that leads to entanglement, to the stressful squeeze on our heart? What is it that leads to disentanglement, the releasing of the, those squeezes of on our heart? This is actually possible for us, even in our busy days, even while raising kids or running a business or trying to make the world a better place or all these things that we are involved in, trying to belong, you know, have friends, whatever it is, be part of a family. These difficult things in human life, we can actually put into the forefront this interest How's the heart doing? And when I say heart, <clears throat> generally, you know, we often, <clears throat> excuse me, use the word heart and mind <clears throat> synonymously in the early Buddhist tradition. And one of the ways to understand what we mean by heart is the place where we notice suffering and the release, the absence of suffering. So when I know I'm really hurting and the heart's really burdened, that's what we mean by the heart, that clear sense, I'm really hurting. This is hard to bear. I feel burdened. I'm anxious, right? How do I know I'm anxious? Well, the heart, <laughs> right? There is there is an actual subjective experience of being burdened. So that's the place that we call the heart, the place that experiences suffering and then its absence and its release. <clears throat> so when we say the heart is empty of suffering, empty of grasping, empty of fear, 
empty of craving, that's also a space that is characterized by being empty of the squeeze. And so this is like for the next few weeks as we're taking on this topic and really for the rest of our lives, you know, this is actually what helps us with all the other practical stuff of life, earning a living, making friends, saying the difficult things we need to say, is to stay attuned to how the heart's doing and what's leading toward the heart getting bound up and what's leading to the heart being unbound. So for example, and it will never be perfect, but for example, let's just take a sticky situation. Let's say it's happening at work and something's been going on that just is, in your mind, not okay. And it's scary for you to say something because you don't have full power in that place. There are people who have more power than you and you don't know the consequences of you speaking up. And yet, it's become clear over the days or weeks that not speaking up is not okay. Like, it's just too hard to bear. It doesn't feel right. So you feel compelled to speak up. So then the question is, how do I show up in my life like keeping this discernment of around the heart in the forefront. So how do I do this in ways that don't contribute to the heart being bound up? And again, remember, it won't be perfect. It's just like in the right direction, in the direction of the heart less bound, as opposed to in the direction of the heart being bound up. And probably what's gotten us to the brink of needing to say something at work is that we've taken the route of not saying something for a while. And how has that worked for our heart? Right? Part of what leads us to say something is the heart is so bound up in not saying anything that it is unbearable. So I'm going to try something else. I'm going to try to say something. So how can I say something that moves in the direction of release? And even if we completely fail in the sense of we say something and the heart is even more bound up, then we learn from that. Okay, what did I miss? What was here and now in the experience of the body and the mind but the heart wasn't sensitive to, didn't include, didn't help inform how the mind discerned how it was going to respond? so that I can really follow this thread of what it, what entangles and burdens the heart, what disentangles and releases the heart, moment by moment by moment. Like even this moment, listening to a talk, there are ways to listen to the talk that are causes for getting tight. And there are ways of listening, to, like thinking that whatever Mark is saying, I've got to grasp and own and make it mine. I don't want to miss this opportunity. <clears throat> but that kind of striving, that kind of greed could be a real cause for suffering. Is there a way for me to be relating to the talk that is conducive of release now and in the future? In this work that we do, the star, these you know, this commitment to Dharma practice, 
in this kind of work, the ends and the means have to be in alignment. They have to harmonize. We can't do the practice in a tight way and expect it to, to lead to release. We have to do the practice in a way that has the flavor of freedom, the flavor of kindness, the flavor of patience, the flavor even of a sense of humor, you know, that lightness of heart. I'll end with a sweet little teaching from an 18th century Buddhist nun from Japan. This is then, of course, from the Zen Buddhist tradition. <clears throat> and this is just this person, um, their insight being described. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that all, she saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she know, then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground to lean on, nothing stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. And this is a powerful reflection, you know, just as we keep the energetic heart as our central theme, as we live our life, how's the heart doing? Numb, tight, open, sensitive, in the direction of more tightness in the direction of more release, to just um, be curious about the understanding and the intuition and the experience of freedom, like a free fall, the heart unburdened, the heart empty of any entanglement. What does our in intuition now tell us. So in our small groups, hopefully a number of you will be able to stay for the small groups that will begin in just a minute. And one of the things that you can talk about in those small groups or for those who can't stay at home with your Dharma friends, good friends, what is your subjective experience of letting go, of letting be? Remember, letting go and letting, uh, letting, letting be or letting go into, they're both about that disentangling, the putting down the load. So what has you, where have you experienced that heart bound up and the releasing of that in your own experience? And what carries on from those moments of letting go? Like what is the understanding or the confidence or the intuition that continues on now from those experiences of letting go. The legacy of those insights, right? We want to respect the legacy of all what life has taught us. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.